of any of the challenges or vulnerabilities, money, sex, power, emotional depletion or running out of emotional resources is the most likely thing to take people out of ministry. Hello and welcome to our second conversation in the mentoring series. I'm Lee Hatcher and I'm greatly honoured to be in conversation with Keith Farmer. As we've heard in our first conversation, Keith has done a great deal of deep thinking and considering big issues of ministry and leadership. Keith, welcome back. Thanks, Lee. Having covered in our first conversation the context of leadership and pastoring today, I want to head to the content of mentoring. So what do you mean by that? Where are we going? What should potential mentors consider there? Okay, mentoring is an alongside relationship that brings together a person who is um, mature and caring and able. By that I mean actually is living their own lives at least reasonably effectively um, and who can share and support and encourage somebody who's not quite as far along or as experienced. Out of your own personal experience of burnout, which we covered in our first conversation, you developed what you call a 360-degree model for staying healthy in ministry. And we'll detail that. So what's all that about? The burnout experience was quite foundational for me in terms of what's happened in my life and ministry since. And I should have been aware that sometimes it's the hard times where we learn most and grow most. It's an interesting comment on the way God works often. Yes. Yes. So I was embarrassed. I actually felt like as if I was a goner. Um, If you're supposed to be the expert in something and you burn out yourself, what future can you see? Not only does burnout have no future in it anyway, but I certainly couldn't see any future. So I was prompted to realise that up until that stage, although I believe I was sincere, I was basically leading and ministering on the natural capacities that I had, both as a pastor and also as a preacher or as a teacher. Humanly speaking. Yes. So that, for instance, when I was at school, I was part of the debating team. And uh, that was just something that I enjoyed before I ever um, trained for ministry, communication in that area. So uh, that was good, but it's actually not enough to get you for a lifelong, sustainable, healthy life, discipleship and leadership. So I needed to go deeper in order to be able to go further. And my journey, and I don't believe everybody has exactly the same mode of the journey, the direction is the same, but my journey has always been one of um, following Jesus, of, of being a more and more committed disciple of Jesus and he points me to God and I fully accept that as Jesus' father that Jesus was the perfect representation of God in human form. So I don't feel like as if I'm undervaluing the essence of discipleship in saying I'm a follower of Jesus and I want to have as close a relationship to him as possible. Intimate and organic is the way it's expressed in John 15 in the message. means it's close and it's getting closer. So I'm tempted to say, isn't every pastor and leader in Christian ministry a follower of Jesus? Why do you need to point that out? Uh, that That is both a very important and to me, quite a traumatic question to have to face. 
And I'm, I'm an optimist in my own approach to life. I generally see the glass half full, not, not half empty. Um, but I actually believe that Western Christianity has been sidetracked in some areas so that I'm not sure, uh, I certainly don't think that there's a, that people's salvation is, is in any way at risk, but the, the following Jesus, we've accepted values that are within our society, like um, individualism, materialism, hedonism, that they're okay in emphasis in themselves, but if you put them as the main thing or if that's what your life revolves around, then in actual fact we're in trouble. So I actually feel that we've been seduced in Western society without almost realising it, and I'm not sure Jesus would recognise some Christianity in Australia today as what he started. He would be saying, how did you get there from what I lived and taught? So that, for instance, Jesus taught that the greatest among you is the one who serves. Now, I have to recognise that I I long in part of me to be powerful in ways that I'm not going to be servant-oriented. But if I do, I've actually missed one of the major emphases of the nature of God, and that is that his power is expressed through love. And if it's power for the sake of power or having other people do what you need them to do or anything that is other than helping people to find the love and grace of God. And I I think that there's a whole area of power that has been um, uh, our Christianity has expressed a secular expression of power rather than the Jesus expression of power. And a lot of that is about Christian character or it, the absence of Christian character. And if, if we don't have the internal security to be able to be a servant without feeling like as if we're losing something, then we won't be a servant. So it all comes back to the essence of who we are through the Spirit of God in us. That's why, that's what I really mean when I say go deeper. It's actually opened your life up more and more to the Spirit of God in a day by day, almost moment by moment. And you have a benchmark for how this is working in your own life, and that's your wife, Marg. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. And and Marg is is, um, not a critical person. She's very, um, very positive and very encouraging. But my understanding of spirituality is that if it doesn't work inside and make a character change for me so that the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, gentleness, people know those very well, so that they aren't gradually being more and more expressed in my life and my closest relationships, then in actual fact it's not Christian spirituality. There's something else that I've been sidetracked into and therefore the person or the people who are closest to me will know. That's why in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus, the picture of leadership is actually an inside-out picture. As I mentioned in the first one, it's family, it's church and it's community. But it, it goes from a spiritual reality to a relational reality to a change in value and then to a change in conduct. conduct. And if that process is not continually happening, we're actually not in touch with God through Jesus. So at this point, I think it's really worthwhile detailing your 360 degree model for staying healthy in ministry. First one is spirituality and then relationships, emotional well-being, the created rhythms of life, which interests me, 
and vulnerabilities. Talk to me about the place of spirituality and, and what you mean by that, because that's a, a pretty kind of elastic term today. Okay. I, I inevitably feel a bit uncomfortable when I talk about spirituality because my growing up years, I never went anywhere near anybody who... Off with the fairies. Was, yeah. Yes. So heavenly that then no earthly... At school, I never went to any Christian group. At university, the only time I ever went to a Christian group was when the geology professor, who was a Christian, was talking about evidence for the Bible, and I found that didn't work for me. So That's why you call yourself a redeemed rat-back. Yeah, so yeah. the idea of spirituality it feels... I, I, I have to say I'm a redeemed rat-back. Okay, <laughs> so... What does it mean in essence? Uh, it, it actually is that I have this intimate organic relationship with God through Jesus that invites him in very regularly to take part in the life that God has given me the privilege of living. And I can lock him out. Not only do I see that invitation in Revelation 3.20, behold, I stand at to deal with salvation, but it deals with, that was written to a church. So they were Christian people who received that. In other words, what was being said was, you are you are a follower of Jesus, you are a Christian, but you're actually locking him out. You're not inviting him in. He's not a bully. He doesn't force his way into any part of life. So actually open up regularly and that, I know how I'm going in my Christian life at any point of any day by recognising what was the last challenge that you faced and how far down the list of things you tried was when you said help to God. In other words, when you said, help me, Lord. I love uh, Peterson in his introductions of the Psalms. He says there's two primary prayers and prayer for me was a, a mystery for many, many years. But Peterson helped me. He said there's two primary prayers. One is help and the other is thanks. And that helped me to say, okay, I can be a prayer. I can actually (laughs) do both of those things. So that the help one is one where we recognise that we have a free will. I believe in the sovereignty of God, but I also believe in free will and that I can travel today almost as if God doesn't exist because I'm not aware of his imminence and that he works everything together for good and that I can reach out to him at any moment and that just opens the door for him. I'll come in, he says. And it's interesting to me that you ask people you mentor two questions which guide them in their spirituality. Tell me what they are. Again, I feel a bit embarrassed about this and for many years actually, when I spoke to anybody about these questions, I apologised for one word in each of the questions. Um, The two questions are, do you know God likes you and do you like God? Um, It's the word like, because it sounds anemic. It sounds a bit... um, Should be love. Yeah, it should be love. Um, The reason why I don't use the word love is because of the contamination. Love can mean almost anything. If you or I understood by love what agape love is from a biblical perspective, then I'll use the word love. But the word like actually has has an impact. I get this. That 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 love doesn't have. So that it was a a a real eye opener to me because I grew up in, as I said, in a beautiful Christian family. But God was um, he was a fair way away, and he was pretty austere. And his major work for me as a kid was that. I was reminded regularly, be sure your sins will find you out. That was his major work. Um, I then came to see that, sure, punishment is part of the love of God because whoever you 
are really for and on their side, you will discipline so that the rest of their life is more constructive. You don't want to inflict pain because you're for the person, but sometimes that pain actually helps. So I came to see the love of God and therefore the grace of God, because grace comes out of love, as the essence of the person whom I was following through Jesus. And it was a it was an eye-opener to me to realise that he likes me. Now, he doesn't like everything I do, but he likes me and therefore he wants to be with me and he's placed his spirit in me and he actually feels very good about a response to him that reciprocates that liking, that he's on my side. I never saw God as on my side for many, many years. But he, it's, it's, the analogy is us as parents where um, we're on the side of our kids and we'll go into bat for them. We know they're not perfect. I remember one time early on, oh, when our kids were teenagers, somebody said to Marg and me, gee, your kids are nice kids. And when we were by ourselves, I said to Mark, do you really think they are? Because they don't feel like as if they are to us. But actually, that was a compliment because they were showing that they were safe in our presence. But that God actually likes us in the, in the same way that we like our children was an eye-opener to me. For 40 years, I'd gone through Sunday school, youth fellowship, uh, full-time theological study uh, and many churches. And it wasn't until I was about um, 50 that a good friend of mine said to me probably the most theologically profound uh, statement and question that I've ever heard. She said, you know, God's on your side. Yeah. And I'd never heard that. Yes. And it had a profound impact on, on And me. to know someone is on your side... You look at that person differently. Yes, yes. And that's a very important, especially if the person who's on your side is the creator and sustainer of this world and the universe. So here's my question. Through endless sermons and leaderships and study through a Christian life, how come someone can get to their 50s or it be such a dawning realisation on you that you haven't known that God's on your side? How come? I think because um, the place of sin needs to be um, recognised so that we don't um, rationalise and and diminish the really um, realistic and important part that falling short of God's standard and who he is so that... Um, when I was at Sunday school, it seemed to me, you know, if, if, if somebody, if somebody gives you a compliment and then says, but, you remember the but yes. much more than the compliment. <laughs> yeah. Or if, when I'm marking an essay, I might say, this is a good essay, but what has the most impact on the person is what I said after the, after the but. It was what came after the but that, impacted me and most other people and that is God does not like our sin but that actually there's no contradiction between him loving us or liking Liking us the image of his image in us which is marred by sin he doesn't love the sin he doesn't like the sin but he still is on our side and we are then asked to deal with that by being forgiven And therefore that redemption um, becomes a very important part of... That's Redemption is motivated by love. We will never give a second chance to anybody whom we don't love. If they are competitors or if we feel threatened by them, if we're not on their side and they go down, at least secretly, we'll be rejoicing. So grace comes out of love. 
If you love somebody, you'll give them a second chance or you won't want the relationship to be broken by the fact that they have fallen short and therefore uh, redemption becomes a positive thing, not a negative thing. It's not as if we are facing our darker side and living in our... We're actually released from it. So we live as redeemed ratbags. I love it. The other question is, do you know God likes you as the first one? Do you like God? Mm. Why is that so important? Um, For me personally, and I realise this is a very idiosyncratic thing to say, but I told you in the first one that I came back to faith through Jesus and the first impression was, I don't know who he is, but I like him. It was this combination of compassion and caring and steel. Yes. That there's a a humble, um, kind, gentle, patient person, but don't try and take too many latitudes because there is steel in that velvet glove. And Jesus was exactly like that. He was incredibly patient and kind with the people who knew they were in trouble, with the self-righteous, hypocritical Pharisees and whatever. Have a look at what he said to them. (laughs) I I sometimes cringe. You know, you go halfway around the world to make a, a convert and when you make that convert, you make them doubly deserving of hell. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, the religious people. Yeah, and then he keeps on. In other words, why I was attracted to Jesus was that there's real character there that is relational and it's kind and it's gentle, but there is a character that allows for courage. There's a character that allows for resilience and sustainability there's a character there that allows us, when we get knocked down, to actually, by God's grace, get up stronger. And that's what helped, happened to me in my burnout. Yes. I actually got up different and stronger. And that these testing times or these setbacks, if we look to God in them, they actually become a springboard towards a going deeper. There's a, there's a mixture of metaphors there. Don't worry about <laughs> we'll that. <laughs> but, but, but actually, through going deeper, then um, we are more sustainable. We are more healthy. Yes, staying healthy in ministry. Yes. That's what this model is about. Yeah. So explain to me, again, in the context of mentoring, the significance of relationships. Why, of all things, have you put that in? Number two. Um, I used to think for many, many years of my life that being a Christian was primarily about belief and that it was about believing the right things that got me into heaven and had me even as a leader if I had the correct theology. You were ticking boxes. I was ticking theological yeah. and and biblical exegetical boxes. And um, it was incredibly important yeah. in those days. It's still important yes. uh, what you believe, but it's not actually the main thing. The main thing is that we have been able to come into a relationship with a loving, gracious God through the sacrifice of Jesus uh, at a high cost, we are able to live life as if we had never sinned, to be on our feet as if we had never been knocked down. Now, we do that humbly because we know our, our own track record, but we also can do it very positively because having known our failures and, and, and being knocked down, we actually now recognise that the essence of who I am is not my natural ability or my knowledge. It's actually my relationship, intimate, organic relationship with a loving, gracious God. Then number three in the model is emotional well-being. 
I can understand that, actually, why that gets pride of place in this model. It's, it has a pride of place for at least a couple of reasons. Um, not the deepest reason, but maybe the one that first got my attention as a mentor is that um, emotional depletion or running out of emotional resources is a current and has been for the at least the length of my mentoring the most likely thing to take people out of ministry mm-hmm. of any of the you know challenges or vulnerabilities money sex power um, whatever um, emotional depletion or, or bad doctrine or something like that yes. um, the most likely either um, particular need to have a break from ministry or even to take a person out of ministry altogether, uh, Satan has been very cunning and he's crept up on us and burnout, for instance, creeps up on people so that the people who are the most highly motivated, the people who are the most committed and often the people who are the most talented are the people who are most likely at some stage to wake up one morning, and this is expressing it a bit crassly and not effectively in one way, wake up one morning and say, I either don't want to do this anymore or I can't do this anymore because the little people inside us who are our motivators have said, We don't care what you think or how much you want to be involved, we're going on holidays and you are in burnout. So although it's not the most important area of life, the spiritual is the centre part, it actually becomes almost the focal point of the way in which ministry and leaders are being attacked or are under pressure today and it happens surreptitiously. I call it death by a thousand cuts. Through a whole lot of the dynamics that we covered in our first conversation. And and it has many of the symptoms of post-traumatic stress except that there's usually not a major traumatic event. Sometimes there is, but usually um, the person has had 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years of really active, effective leadership and at some point their mind says, I want to keep on going, but actually they can't. So the place of the emotion is that it's not at the centre, but it does at least two things. One is it... Um, is a good barometer of how we're travelling in other areas of life so that the feelings come out of the heart. For instance, I can tell what my feelings are towards a person if I see them 50 metres away on the street. And those feelings could range from prompting me to either run to meet the person or surreptitiously go to the other side of the street. So my first indicator as to what's in my heart is actually a feeling. So we don't, we shouldn't take it as the most important, but it's a good barometer of what is happening in our heart. And the feelings, the second reason is the feelings, if they are in any way limited or knocked out, they will affect every other part of our life. For instance, the person who is burned out finds incredible difficulty praying. It's almost impossible to pray when you are in the space of burnout or emotional depletion. Why is that? Um, well, uh, prayer is a relationship. It's it's It's... And prayer is looking for help. And when you're burnt out, you don't even have any motivation to ask for help or to accept that you need help until it's a fair way down the track. So that emotions are actually truncated 
and therefore motivation is truncated and the motivation even to do the really important spiritual disciplines will also suffer. And of course, every other area of life, the person who is emotionally depleted, uh, their relationship, um, emotional depletion has three major expressions that we can look for to see whether a person is heading towards. One is that they become flat in terms of emotional expression. Uh, They are depleted. The second is that relationships will suffer, all relationships, because it takes energy and you don't have that energy and the person who will first recognise that something's amiss will be the closest person to you and then performance will begin to so it's called depersonalization and then there's a drop off in um, effectiveness of performance particularly in concentration levels and the extent to it so once those three begin there's other maladies or dilemmas that also have those so it's sometimes a little bit tricky to work out whether a person's depressed or whether they're heading towards burnout because many of the symptoms initially are fairly um, similar and some of the um, bases or reasons why a person is struggling are similar also but those three would give an indication fairly early that the emotional resources are running low. Hi, I'm Peter Mayrick from Partners in Ministry. Partners in Ministry wants to support and equip church leaders to better lead their churches in Christ's mission. And we want to see the Church of Christ grow through effective ministry, which produces disciples who make other disciples. We do this through providing one-to-one support for church leaders and by providing tools and training for church leaders which are focused on achieving effectiveness in church ministry and leadership. We would love to work with you, we'd love to meet you, and we'd love to support you in your ministry. If you're interested in taking up our offer, please contact us through info at partnersinministry.com or through our website and we'll follow up with you. Thanks so much. Talk to me about the fourth one, the created rhythms of life. I'm interested in this. What do you mean by that, Keith? Um, That's a fancy way of talking about Christian stewardship. Um, Created rhythms of life, because I think what we deal with there is to look at the um, key habits, the key values, the key commitments, the key actions that are present in a person's life to see whether they are healthy or not. So that we are open to talk about eating, sleeping, exercise, taking days off regularly, having fun in your life, hope, is there any enjoyment, anything you look forward to? Um, All of the um, pragmatic areas that if they are not healthily stewarded, they will detract from, say, the more important areas of your life in the spirituality and even the emotional uh, colour and flavour of of your life. Because you're only human. Because you are human and... God created us to live and he said, I, Jesus said, I came to give you life to the full and the life to the full is following the way Jesus expresses what should be our values and what should be our actions in life. So we get, and we spend a fair bit of time on these kinds of issues so that, for instance, something that, only more recently is coming into flavour and into favour. And I read in a weekend newspaper an article about how important it is to have sleep 
in the right amounts and quality because this particular article was saying that um, intellectual impairment, particularly later in life, is significantly affected by quality and quantity of earlier life sleep. And if if we try and um, run light on that, it will not only detract from our daily quality of life, but it will detract from the quality of life in the future. So that um, I would now come to believe and I would say 40, 45 years of my life, I had one of the values as sleep as little as you can because it's a waste of time. And you can, if you sleep less, you can do more. And then I did a course in my D-Min with a guy by the name of Arch Hart and he, in his inimitable, incredible way, asked us as a class to put up our hands as to how many hours sleep we needed in order to get through the next day and the next day feeling okay and not, you know, that mid-afternoon feeling where yes. you just struggle to, you don't enjoy life or whatever. And, and you know, some people said they needed five to six hours. I'm in the seven to nine hours. And then when he said above nine hours, he put his own hand up. And I thought, because that guy, he was the dean of the Graduate School of Psychology at Fuller Theological Seminary. He'd written at least 20 books that were world-renowned at that time. And I thought, how can a person (laughs) who needs 10 hours sleep a night do those things? And he said, whatever you need, and I agree some people's metabolism actually means that they can cope with five hours sleep. Not many, but some people... Whatever you need, get, and that will mean that your waking hours are much more productive. So I actually ask people, and and it's amazing, it is sad that I would say at least 75% of us, because I'm in this category too, at least once or twice a week have some difficulty sleeping well. So we go in and I've developed personally some strategies, some key self-talk in the middle of the night, like whatever you think in the middle of the night, it's probably rubbish. You're not geared up to think straight in the middle of the night. It's probable that what you're worried about in the middle of the night, you can fix in five minutes in the morning. So don't worry about it. Dead right. So I've got some strategies and I encourage, we get right down to the very pragmatic, what will help you get back to sleep effectively so that you get that sleep that will set you up for effective living the next day. And, you know, days off, I find... Um, Days truly off. Truly off. Yeah. And the principle there that I help people to see that I didn't know for quite a while and was given to me was only under the circumstances that something is both urgent and important should it make any difference to your scheduled day off. And there are very few both urgent and important matters. There are some. But if it is urgent but not important, why are you doing it anyway? If it's important but not urgent, you can take your day off and do it after your day off. So I actually coach my mentorees to be aware of what might be a pastoral situation or a situation in life where you need to say this is both urgent and important. But if you, if you go into or change your day off, make sure 
that you take another, another day in its place so that the recuperative processes, because what mentoring has taught me and what that kind of teaching that I got from Arch Heart has helped me to see is how crucial effective rest or Sabbath is in living life to the full. And I've now developed the short kind of slogan that says stop well and you will go well. So one of my hopes is that I will be able to encourage even people who have incredibly big emotional tanks or are deeply resourceful leaders that it'll catch up with you at some stage and if you don't replenish at some stage you will run out of resources. What great wisdom, Keith. Final one in the 360-degree model is vulnerabilities. Why is that there? It's actually at the heart because in order to be a redeemed rat bag, we have to be positively embracing our vulnerabilities. That is both aware of them and also aware of key strategies and supports that we need. And that's why I put accountability alongside vulnerability so that I would say every one of us is made to live in community in order to be a fully developed person. And and and, and I love passages like Ephesians 4 that basically say it's through ministry to one another that we grow and we become mature so that uh, who my wife is gives me something that helps me to be more fully human in the way God created and vice versa. And when I go to church or when I go into a Christian community, I grow in my capacity to have the fruit of the Spirit, spirit grow in 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 my my life. But to accept that a part of growing is to recognise my need for support and to acknowledge my vulnerabilities. Now, that requires a lot of honesty. It does. Especially to leaders who at least need to be seen to be in charge and in control and together. Yes. That I have vulnerabilities? Really? Don't want to go there. Can I tell you a, a, an instance about... 30 years ago, and I use this with permission, that seemingly was of little import or value at all, but I have come to believe that it was an example of how important accepting our vulnerabilities and being accountable in them is. was when I was at the college, and because we had a college community Morning tea time was a very important community event. And one particular morning tea, a a female student who was a first-year student and whom I uh, didn't know very well came up to me and said, Keith, are you going to be at morning tea tomorrow? I said, as far as I know, yes. She said, I'm just wondering whether tomorrow you would ask me how I got on tonight. And I said, oh, okay. Yes, I will. And she walked away. And I thought, okay. <laughs> and then she, after a little while when I was by myself, she came back and she said, look, I need to just say to you, you know I haven't been a Christian for very long. I was in a relationship before I became a Christian that wasn't a God-honouring relationship that I, I broke. I'm having dinner with that man tonight and I'm still vulnerable so I'm just wondering, would you help me? So anyway, the next day when I made sure I was by myself and she came up and uh, she was beaming and she said to me, thank you so much. You have helped me so much. <laughs> what did I do? <laughs> I said, what, what, what happened? She said, it was fine. But you know what? It wouldn't have been except I kept saying to myself, what am I going to say to Keith tomorrow? Yep. And she said, that was the thing that kept me. Now, that person graduated to ministry 
and is in and is still in ministry today and I mentor that person today. She's had a brilliant ministry for God in over a period of about 30 to 40 years. And that, Satan had the possibility to take her out in that instance. Acknowledging a vulnerability and also accountability. And being accountable so that, and you have to be very careful about this. You have to be astute in a sense to know what is the level of the relationship that you are safe and basically not inject into any relationship anything that tests the safety. But there are some people, a very small number of people, I would say, who every one of us has come to know that they are for us, that they are completely safe and that they would do nothing within their volition to actually harm us and that we can form a relationship with those people where we say to them, I give you permission to ask me the hard questions and I'm going to actually set up an accountability opportunity where I know that I'm going to be asked those hard it's amazing how many people, and I say this is a joke, this is lighthearted. Go back to the gym the week before I turn up to mentor them. <laughs> Why do they go back to the gym? Because they know I'm going to say, how's your exercise going? And I say that to them and they say, yep, yep, I'm at the gym. And I say, have you been there all the time since we talked about Oh, Let's change well. the subject. Yeah, I went back last <laughs> yeah, week. Yeah. So the accountability is way beyond its apparent level of leverage and of power. And I think it's because God has made us with very careful safety considerations to actually work out that we're not able to do life alone and that we need... That, for instance, in my, I, I've had a mentor right through, but my, the mentor I had passed away, and I now have four of the people who I have mentored for many years, whom I have said to them, could we make this mutual? And maybe I'd mentored them for 10 years before I asked them that, so that Half of the mentoring is me asking you the question and the other half is you asking me those questions so that I know that there's four people in Australia who therefore on a very regular basis are going to be asking me all of the questions or potentially asking me all of the questions that I'm asking them. That's quite an eye-opener And And that's partly on the basis, and this is... When I was studying psychology... And this was a secular textbook. I read something like, there's nothing as radically redemptive as an open life. Few secrets and no deep ones. That came from a secular psychology textbook that said, as you mature, as you grow, be careful and there's always a private part to us, but have as few secrets as possible and no deep ones. Wow. What great wisdom in this model. Can I take you now to the spiritual formation process about which you're particularly passionate? Why are you so passionate? Just briefly. It's changed my life. Yeah. And I believe, and and there's, there's actually, and I love this, there's research findings now that that show quite clearly that for people in Christian leadership, and particularly for people in pastoral leadership and ministry, the quality and sustainability of their leadership, if you want to run to ground the variables or the factors that contribute most positively to the quality and longevity of their ministry, there is one factor that stands out above 
any others. And it is an intimate, organic relationship with a loving, gracious God. If that relationship is alive and well, that is more, in practical terms, more powerful to help people to to stay healthy, to be effective disciples and effective leaders than any other factor that has been studied in surveys. Okay, so this is a process. And again, you've got various stages of that. First one is Christian commitment, which I think that's rather obvious. Why do you think you need to identify that first in the spiritual formation process? I, I would think that's a given. I think that that's just the the best way to express what is the essence of being on a growth and a uh, inner um, fruit of the spirit growth. And that is that my values change to the point where one of the... um, Values and the most important value in my life is to be a follower of Jesus and for the Spirit of God who is the person who contains the qualities of love, joy, peace. Um, they are the key qualities of God, the fruit of the Spirit, yes. describe the nature of God, their relational and their personal qualities, that I have come to believe that the most important thing in life is to let those qualities grow through the Spirit of God in me and that is a committed relationship. Because I know God likes me and I am actually attracted to him. See, I I find this attractiveness of God very pivotal in committing to him. I will I will want to follow in a human sense, I will want to be committed to anybody whom I think is living life in an attractive, effective way. That's almost a given for all of us. Yes. We will follow a gifted person for some time. We will follow a person of Christian character for a lifetime so that as leaders, and Paul said in one part in 1 Corinthians 11, he said, follow me as I follow Christ. Now that might sound a bit egotistical, but it's actually the opposite. Yes, There wouldn't be any encouragement to follow me unless I am following Christ. So commitment... So being a follower of Jesus is the number one priority in my life. Second stage in the process is Christian challenges. And and you say it's a predisposition of security, humility, community and eternity. Okay. I'll get you to remind me of each one of those. But the first one, and these are the challenges. These are... These are the obstacles in a way that need to be overcome through the process of spirituality. Yes. And the first one is probably the most important dilemma or problem of humanity Security. and of me personally, and it is that in and of myself, I am quite an insecure person. Now, I've said enough about my earlier life to tell you that I should be from my earlier life, an incredibly secure person because my parents were loving. We were brought up in a home where my mum and dad loved each other. They loved us. There wasn't a lot of emotional expression of that, but there were very many practical expressions of it so that I should be the most secure person in the world. And yet I grew up as an incredibly competitive person and that's a part of my earlier life that I actually wonder why I was so competitive. I I mentioned to you that I'm not very proud of some of the ways I played sport. Even with my twin brother, I 
I was a bully. He was actually shorter and lighter than me, so I could bully him. And I played to win, even to cheating with the score. That's how I played sport, because I was so competitive. And insecure. And in, and the basis of that was, um, and I've come to believe that even with the most secure family upbringing, there's still a strong likelihood, even inevitability, that we will become self-centred and very competitive on the basis of performance. And we will take our sense of worth from that performance and therefore that's what we put most of our... So that we perform well in order to try and be okay. It's a big issue for the leader. The big issue for all of us and for leaders is that we are okay in order to be able to perform well. And it sounds as if that's just semantics. It sounds as if you're just using words. But there is a world of difference between me getting up each morning and with a loving, gracious God walking through the day and knowing he's with me and he can work everything together for good and therefore approaching the challenges in that kind of way compared with me waking up thinking, what have I got? Oh, I'll have to be at my best to really carry that one out and feeling halfway through the day that, I'm not a very good leader because I didn't do that very well and sinking into self-talk that's very negative and before I know where I'm, I am, I've got my resignation written out because I'm not a good, I'm not a good leader. So there's a world of difference. So security is actually only in somebody who will never go away. And even the best marriage, doesn't fully have that security. And I reckon I've got the best marriage. I don't mean that in a in a pride. I am married to the most beautiful person I have ever met in the world who tells me regularly that she loves me deeply. But there's still some part of me. Uh, since I got married, I've gradually let her know what she got because I reckon that she mightn't have agreed to marry me You're not alone. if she knew what she was yes. getting. So I've gradually become more and more secure, but I still reckon I could be a rat bag in a way that crept up with me. I doubt whether this is ever true. I've not been this, but I still reckon that there's a vulnerability there, but not with God. With God, nothing will separate us from him. Romans Eight, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And, and that is the only, the only thing that can give me a deep security that I'm okay because the one who made and created this world is there. And that changes every day. I get up, literally I get up because I'm not a good getter-upper. I get up differently depending on how eminent that is in my heart and my mind. Next stage in the spiritual formation process is Christian capacity and character. Here's the character question again. Yes. Um, Can I start by saying that I reckon in my mentoring at least half of the stress, the pressures, the dilemmas that good leaders and the people I mentor are good leaders, that they experience at least half of the stress and the pressure arises from their response to situations rather than the situation themselves. Now, there are stressful, there there are conflict situations that arise um, inevitably, but a very important part of living life effectively and of leading well is the way in which we respond to a pressure. And we show what is within us probably more than at any other time when we're under pressure. Um, and... If our response is immature, for instance, if it's either uh, aggressive 
or defensive and they're at opposite ends in one way of a spectrum, then they're probably not constructive responses and we may, if it's aggressive or even if we are defensive and whatever, we won't address the problem in the most effective way. So that a very important part of life and of discipleship and of leadership is to have within us a deep security that allows us not to react in ways that are destructive or not constructive and to actually seek the wisdom of God in a situation that allows us not always to be able to bring that situation to an effective resolution or reconciliation or complete harmony, but to bring the best out of the situation. So that this whole area of maturity of response and of Christian character is an extremely important part of effective ongoing leadership. Which then leads in the final stage of the process to Christian conduct, the consideration of Christian conduct. Yes, so that once there is inner security and once there is the opportunity to um, have the values right and to approach a, a situation compassionately but objectively, then that will issue in conduct through relationships that are godly conduct and that will be shown by patience, gentleness, kindness in the relationship that leads to conduct which is constructive for a person. So in wrapping up the spiritual formation process, take us through the reasons why a mentor or a mentoree needs to get all this. Where does it fit in with mentoring? It's probably worth asking that. Yeah. I I am, you are, primarily a result of who has influenced our lives, of the people we live with, of the people whom we have consciously and unconsciously given leverage and influence um, for right or wrong, we are primarily a result of our relationships and of the modelling that we have had in our lives. Now, I'm not in any way trying to lessen the effectiveness of genetic inheritance and I'm certainly not trying to downgrade how important what we have learned is. They are both really important. But the trump card, more impacting and more powerful than either of those two, is consciously and unconsciously the people with whom we are most closely in contact. It's In psychological terms, it's called socialisation. And we become like the people we live with. Mm. Now, we may not like that. We may not even know that. So that, uh, as a model, and that does not mean that I don't need to regularly repent. But as a model, my conduct and my behaviour and who I am is way more important than anything I ever say or coach or do in mentoring. Let me give me one example. About four years ago, the group of people whom I went through my training in college, four years, full-time training, we had a 50th anniversary of our graduation. And um, one of our groups said we had lunch together and a fantastic afternoon together. Um, We'd gotten together on the 50th anniversary of when we started college as well. And one of my colleagues said, why don't we just have a little reflective exercise? Why don't you say, of the four years that you were in college, 
what was the most impactful issue, event, teaching, class, whatever. And there were, I think it was eight of us present. We just went around. Six of us, including me, said A.W. Stevenson, the principal of the college. Mm. So four years of training, what is the most impactful? And I said, I even tried to preach like him because I thought he was a gracious, loving, courageous person. I wanted to be like him. Five of my colleagues, and I was the last person to talk, so they didn't take it from me, Five of my colleagues said that. So it it's just an illustration that who we are is, so, you know, the the medium is the message. Yeah. Um, it's who we are that actually communicates as much or more than anything else. Can I finish with this quote that I think in the context of mentoring and in life generally is a great point to finish Uh, You say, a relationship with a loving, gracious, powerful God is the most effective resource for finishing well. Finishing well, yes. Finishing well, I mean that in life. Okay. So that, I suppose if I wanted to put it in a very succinct form, I'd say, so I don't become a grumpy old man (laughs) because that is more than on the cards, I can tell you. Because as you gradually get older, there are many areas of life that gradually close in on you. Sometimes I feel like that. And you can very easily get grumpy. Every one of us has reverses and difficulties and setbacks in life that if we are not processing them healthily, if we are not able by God's grace to let things go and at least in time forgive and move on, we will become, at the very least, negative, cynical people who are actually not looking forward to the next day, who are quite defensive in life. The opposite of that is what Jesus promised, where we move out positively by the security in God's love and grace to be people of salt and light, God's colours and flavours, to be able gradually, as the fruit of the Spirit are more and more evident because fruit grows gradually, so it's a maturation process to actually, whatever the circumstances of life, to be able to be resilient and able to get back up positively and probably stronger so that we actually finish life in that mode. Keith, this series is not about me, but I must say in two conversations already, it's been immensely impactful for me and I'm sure everyone watching. Thank you so much for joining us. Look forward to conversation three. Thank you, Lee.